Hello there, viewers. I'm Michael Berryman. I'm here with Matthew, and I'm talking about my experience with uh, uh, Star Trek in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And also, I had a chance to be Captain Ricks in Next Generation, the first bullion. Hope you enjoy it, and have a great life. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today, I'm talking to a man who embodies horror films, and it's pretty awesome that he does happen to be in Star Trek to give me the perfect excuse to chat him up. And that man is none other than Mr. Michael Berryman. Michael appeared twice in Star Trek history, first in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home as a Starfleet display officer and a very unique-looking alien, one that I don't think we've ever seen since. He followed that up by returning in the first season of The Next Generation, this time as the Bolian Starfleet captain named Rix from the episode Conspiracy. He was one of the three captains who met with Picard when he first learned of something fishy going on within Starfleet. And by the way, if you want to meet Captain Trila Scott from that same episode, don't forget to check out my interview with Ursula Bryant deep into my Trek Untold archives. Beyond Star Trek, though, is where you're going to likely recognize Michael much, much more. With his roles in films and shows like The Hills Have Eyes, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The X-Files, Weird Science, Auntie Lee's Meat Pies, Tales from the Crypt, Spy Hard, The Giver, Devil's Rejects, Penny Dreadful, The Lords of Salem, and, believe it or not, even some Motley Crue music videos. Michael has a diverse career that has deep roots in horror, but his skills are much more than playing one-note characters. And it was really great listening to him talk about his journey through Hollywood. This is a performer who doesn't have to go to work because he's doing what he loves and being paid to have fun. You're going to have a hard time not smiling during this interview, even when things do get a little bit spooky. So get ready to have a scary good time with Mr. Michael Berryman. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the screen here. If you're a fan of horror movies, I'm pretty sure you've seen this man plenty of times before. I know I have. We are joined today by Mr. Michael Berryman. Michael, how are you? Doing real good, Matthew. It's really awesome to have you here today. You know, like I, I've seen you in so many things. And when I found out you were in Star Trek, I was just like, well, this is perfect. This is a great excuse to talk with this really cool dude. So uh, very, very excited about today's interview. Well, it's, it's you know, I mean, it's a great tradition. Uh, everything that Gene 
the Majel started, it just uh, turned into uh, just a very positive message for humanity. I, uh, you know, been a fan forever. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to talk about Star Trek. I'm going to ask you some questions about a few other things you've done throughout your life and career, because there's, again, a lot of really cool stuff in your resume that I really enjoyed rewatching. Uh, some things maybe not so much because they're a little scary for me, but, uh, you know, I, I survived. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'd like to start with the first question here, which I ask all my guests, and uh, that's, Michael, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up as a kid watching it? <laughs> well, as a kid, I didn't grow up till my 20s, probably, but... We watched when television was in black and white. We watched the original series all the time, all the time. I've seen every episode. As a matter of fact, I was at a convention a few months ago, and a uh, uh, a vendor had the uh, the big DVD with everything. And I said, I and I said, uh, what do you deal? You know. So I have that, and uh, I'll binge on it. I mean. The stories are just, um, you know, uh, brilliant, just brilliant. So I'd like to get a little bit of uh, background info from you now, if you don't mind. Uh, can you tell us a bit about where you were born, who your parents were and what they did, and what little Michael wanted to be when he grew up? Well, uh, it's funny that you ask. Well, it's not funny, but uh, timely. I, I'm actually, uh, I, I've been working on my memoir, and we're at the Last chapter, chapter 12, I've done the epilogue. I'm uh, meeting with my co-writer uh, tomorrow. We'll tidy that up and hopefully we can get a contract and then uh, it'll uh, be available to uh, um, curious, curious people. Yes. It's a very good read. Well, it, it reads as a story of my life. So uh, I was born in 1948. And uh, I was the second child of a, a mother who was a registered nurse in Los Angeles. She was from Pasadena. My father, I mean, she was in, from the San Fernando Valley, Reseda. And my father was a neurologist, brain surgeon, graduated from USC, my mom from UCLA. So whenever it was football season, us kids, we didn't know who to root for, you know. <laughs> make mom, dad happy. Make mom happy. Dad happy. Ah, it's just a game. Watch, you know, they're playing football. So uh, they met. Got married. My dad was uh, a Navy surgeon, and he was attached to the Marine Corps. And he went to the South Pacific, to all the islands, Kwajalein, Marianas. Uh, it was a rough go. Anyway, at the end of his service, he went on a secret mission, top secret mission. And he was a surgeon neurologist that went to Ground Zero at Nagasaki. I have pictures I do not share, do not post, but I have seen that were given to me by my father who was not supposed to take the pictures and they are the devastation of the city of Nagasaki. And one particular photo is a, a wall with uh, shadows of vaporized human beings that used to be living. So I found that to be quite intriguing when I was old enough to understand about the world outside my immediate family. When my father returned, I actually had the, a lot of the letters that uh, my parents wrote back and forth. And he was uh, telling my mother how he couldn't wait to have another child. That would be me, number two. What he did not know and what, you know, governments and well, not in general, I think the scientists knew, but um, radioactivity is not healthy for living cells. So his body had been severely radiated, duh. And when he came home, uh, I was born. 1948, uh, I think eight weeks early, back then that was a big deal. And the ends of my fingers and the ends of my toes were not fully developed. They're actually just little nubs that go past the last knuckle. My, the area from this area in here was underdeveloped. I, my teeth were not fully formed. They were all ripped out and I've had dentures my whole life, which is great because I never had to deal with a drill. Yay. You win a few. And there was uh, another situation, which is, uh, I can't dissipate heat. Uh, I had a condition called 
hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia with synostosis of the cranium. So uh, being a brain surgeon, my father was pretty hip to the concept that my, I had hair, I had one haircut. We'll get to that in a minute. My brain was getting larger. Yeah. So it became massive, right? Yeah. The problem was my skull was not growing at, at, at a rate that would uh, accommodate a growing brain. So at Children's Hospital, they were going like, well, I don't know what to do, doc. And my father said, well, he needs a craniectomy. So if you look carefully, you can see the fissures. Oh, yeah, yeah. They literally cut my skull apart and uh, separated the plates and then put pieces of bone and spacers in between. And the bone came from my uh, pelvis. And they all grafted well. And at least I have an oval head, not a square head or something odd with a big dish or antler sticking out or something like that. So it was successful in the sense that I didn't die or go blind. Well, then my mother had about four or five miscarriages. Of course, splitting the atom, you know, we never should have done that. Didn't serve any good purpose, you know. Um, you know, people can argue, well, it, it stopped the war overnight, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's how my life started. I went to Catholic school. This, and I share all this in my book. Uh, I had to go to Catholic school because my mother was uh, Catholic, my father Presbyterian. Now, back then, the archdiocese had somebody, and I believe his name was Cardinal Manning, in charge of all the archdiocese in the area. And they basically told my parents that they were not allowed to get married in the church because my father was not Catholic. So um, they also said, unless they signed a contract that they would send us children to Catholic grammar school, they wouldn't allow them to get married in the Catholic church. My father thought that was, uh, uh, what do you call that? Not persuasion, but uh, blackmail. Yeah, black coercion. It was. So instead of going to publicly tax-funded school that had an area to play in, play yard, maybe grass, maybe, you know, real area for kids to play, second grade through eighth grade. Instead, we, it was all asphalt, parking lot. And then there's a the church, and then there was a the school, and then up above on the north end of the property was a giant mansion. It was all donated by a wealthy Catholic family that turned, gave it all to the church which is a fine thing to do. There was uh, issues with uh, Catholicism. There still are issues with Catholicism. And if you don't like it hearing this, you need to uh, just get over it. I've talked to many survivors. I was an altar boy. Enough said. Yeah, I don't think that needs any further questions. If you want to know more, buy me a beer and a shot of whiskey, and I'll tell you all about it. Or buy my book when it comes out in a few months. <laughs> I think that's By the way, I'm on Instagram and TikTok. You go to uh, official Michael Berryman. Uh, uh, we've been doing some real fun little short videos that are just apps, uh, just taken off. So I went to high school after grammar school. Uh, 1966, I went off to college, middle of the state of California, agricultural area east of the Bay Area, uh, actually a little south, called San Luis Obispo. It's a beautiful place. Um, studied veterinary science, loved it. Again, these fingers just couldn't do the job. So I said, eh, what are you going to do? Well, I took a lot of art classes. I took history classes, a lot of science. And in 1972, I ran out of money. And... Um, Went up to Washington State, helped a friend rebuild a house that had burnt down in a fire. Of course, of course, it was fire. And he had only a couple of months to live in his neighbor's house that were on vacation. And to get a house rebuilt with a roof weather tight before the rains came. So I had a buddy that he was a grammar school friend. And I went with another friend of mine from the Bay Area 
So in order to get from Santa Monica to uh, San Francisco, Berkeley, as a matter of fact, it was 1966. So what do you do? Pack your bag, you stick your thumb out on the Pacific Coast Highway, you get picked up by a VW van with a bunch of hippies. And we, we laughed and sang and had great food and incense and dogs and cats and monkeys. And it was safe that people took care of one another. You could see people, flower children, as you call them, you know, up and down the coast, all over the country, all over the world. It was, it was a wonderful time. And those are good people. You know, anybody go, ah, filthy hippies, blah, 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 blah. You know, they're full of it. Different times. I have people all over the world. I've lived in, I lived in the Ozarks. I lived in the mountains. I lived in the desert. I've uh, had a lot of experiences. So that's kind of a prelude to uh, how I wound up coming back from Washington State. I came back home and was told I couldn't live in the uh, five-bedroom, two-story 4,000 square foot home that I grew up in, but my younger brothers could, and they were in their 20s. Anyway, enough of that. That's just a teaser, so you won't want to read my book. Yeah, this, this is a really good plug for the oh, book. Oh, I, I was living in the street. I uh, had a four-wheel drive Dodge Power Wagon for all your motorheads, put a camper shell on it and crawl through, got me a German Shepherd Coyote buddy, uh, got trained as a Private guard, wound up working for Bob Dylan later on. Met George Harrison one night. Wow. Got to read my book. Great stories. <laughs> Michael, you so were such a tease. I would stay on people's couches here, there, and otherwhere doing odd jobs until one day I'm in Venice Beach at a little um, little shop. It used, used to be a little cottage like two blocks from the ocean in Venice in 1972. Pretty groovy, man. So a friend of mine and I uh, rented it for $90 a month, and we knew all the local artists. And it was, since it was a house, I could crash there at night, you know, walk around Venice, you know, smoke a doobie, have a beer, a lot of live music everywhere, go surfing. Good things to do. Back then, people just didn't do uh, Twitter and live in front of a screen like in the Matrix, you know. Not my thing, man. So one day across the street, a very, very, very famous, three varies, by the way, very famous antique store called the Gallimaufry. It's on West Washington Boulevard, right off of Main Street. Now, Venice since then has turned into Millionaire Alley, which is fine. You know, there's what, 7 million people in LA. I mean, I left years ago. Well, the people across the street were friends of ours in business. You know, we knew them. They knew us. They had Egyptian egg urns and expensive, expensive stuff. So one night they said, hey, you guys have uh, some house plants and stuff that you sell and you have art stuff on consignment. Can you bring over all your ferns and, and make the, make our place look kind of homey with uh, you know some vegetation? I go, sure, we can do that. So we did. We got dressed up as fancy as we could because it was an invitation-only auction for, for these very expensive high-end items that were very interesting. So we're hanging around, and the husband and wife that ran the Gallimaufry, the wife's father was a very famous producer, and he was there that night. And he walked up to me, and he goes, oh, pardon me, uh, uh, are you an actor? See, I was wearing a cape from Morocco, uh, which I would actually, it was wool, it was, Perfect. But see, I had a motorcycle. I'd ride motorcycles. I'd go camping. I had my truck. Um, so I could use this as a sleeping bag or throw it. It, it accommodated, especially when I had to sleep in the street or, you know, you always park in front of that big landscaping truck. So nobody rear ends you at night if you're living on the street. There's so much you can learn how to live in the street and not be dead. Anyway, I said, well, uh, no, I'm not an actor. You know, I'm wearing this cape because it's kind of fancy and there's fancy rich people and there's Bentleys and Rolls Royces and chauffeurs and all these people are, you know, looking at these cool items. And he said, well, um, here's my card. Call my office because I want to put you in a movie. And I go, well, do I get paid? I, uh, there's a union, I think. I'm not in that. I'm not really. Nice. He said, no, no, you'll be fine. You have, you have the perfect look. I go, well, what did you have in mind? 
as well the role as a, a coroner from South America. And, and uh, you're checking out uh, the demise of someone's father and it's mysterious. And you have some slides that you took from his blood and, and you looked at it in the microscope and it's a mystery to you. So the person that arrives is of course a brilliant scientist and a superhero and his name is uh, Doc Savage. Now Doc Savage was based on the pulp novels. I think he wrote about 130 of them. Action, action uh, pulp books, fascinating. And I said, I've heard of those. He says, yeah, when you meet in my office and meet my director, uh, I have every one on display just for fun. I go, oh, okay. Now I'm looking at his card and it says Warner Brothers. Oh, I had friends that were in the industry, did TV and stuff, or Disney and what have you. And I said, I know about Warner Brothers. I like movies. Then I looked at his name. You know what it said? Do you know? George Powell. Now, George Powell was pretty famous. Why? Well, he, I think he was from Europe, Germany, I believe. He started the Puppetoons, and he became a very, very historically uh, significant person in the field of uh, stop frame animation and animatronics that were non electric back then. Yeah. And I told George Powell, Do you know who you are? You produced the War of the Worlds, Journey to the Center of the Earth. The time machine. Before I could say another word, he tapped my hand and said, it's okay, just call my office. And I did. And I went and they said, um, Ron Ely is going to play Doc Savage. And I go, ah, cool, the blonde Tarzan. And he went, what a nice guy. Anyway, I um, get another phone call. And they say, uh, could you come down to, to Warner Brothers to get your wardrobe? Yeah. And I did. And then they said, well, you, um, you need a contract. And I said, well, I don't have an agent, you know. And what became of that was uh, George put a contract together. I got paid $400. And he gave me something that's called a Taft-Hartley contract. Now, if you study labor law at all, uh, Taft-Hartley was a, 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 a federal policy that was brought about by Mr. Taft and Mr. Hartley and passed into law legislation, which said, if you are working for an organization that is union, you're allowed to work two days without having to join the union. On day three and beyond, you have to join the union. I, I, I In particular, uh, I happen to appreciate unions. Uh, our union is, is very strong and, and we have wonderful people involved in it and there's safety guidelines that are adhered to. People got treated really crappy uh, before there were unions. And yes, you know, there was Hoffa and blah, 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 and the unions are crooked and corrupt. Not 100%, okay? Because a lot of times if you don't have a good contract and someone to back you up with lawyers, they go, sue me. Well, we have lawyers in our union. I love my union. So I worked uh, one day with a two-day guarantee. Made 400 bucks, had a good time. Came home, got a check in the mail. I'm going, uh, what am I going to do now? I asked my doctor advice, and she said, uh, I said, well, I'm not quite sure if that's enough information, but uh, I'll do my best. And then a few months went by. I spent my time, you know, doing odd jobs, day jobs, you know, sign up for like workforce, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I get a phone call. Well, actually, there was no cell phones back then. I got a phone call at my friend's apartment. I'll go there and check messages. And he goes, hey, you, you got a call from uh, a studio. And I go, really? Okay. And I called him back. And here's what I heard. Hi. Uh, huh. I'm in uh, Michael Douglas's office with Saw Zantz, and uh, we'd like you to come down to Culver Studios off of West Washington Boulevard and have a meeting with us because we think you would be a good fit for a lobotomy patient in Ken Kesey's uh, uh, film adaptation of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I did that. I paused. And then I said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Could you speak a little louder? 
And they repeated the same words. And I'm going, wow, okay. Well, I'm not dreaming. Yeah, I'll be there. Time and when. Went to the meeting. There was Joel Douglas, Michael Douglas's brother, Saul Zance, the founder of Fantasy Films and Fantasy Records. He had all the blues artists signed up. He's out of Berkeley. Wonderful fellow. He was like a pirate, you know, just a great guy. And I met my director, Milos Foreman. Pretty interesting cat. And then I had a question. I said, um, well, I did have a craniectomy. I told him about my family, my history. And I said, yeah, I've been to mental hospitals with my dad. I've been to state hospital. I've got a lot of experiences in a lot of areas. I says, uh, I know the story very well. I said, I'd be delighted to um, bring it, bring the character alive. And I asked them next, who's going to play McMurphy? And the answer is, that's your cue. Jack Nicholson. Yes, Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. And I go, okay. So I shook everybody's hand and I go to walk out and go, uh, we'll be in touch. We'll see you in Oregon. Oh, by the way, have your agent call us. And I go, okay. <laughs> I go outside. I ran to a payphone, put in some nickels, dimes, and quarters or whatever it was. And I called my friends and I stayed at their apartment. I go, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be in one fool with a cuckoo's nest. I don't believe this shit. And, and I did. Yeah. We're at 127 just, days. I just rewatched the whole the interview. Is interview is thoroughly and, covered in my book. I'll let you, believe me, I'll let you know when it's available. Yeah, I just want to spend a little more time actually talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because, you know, I just rewatched it for this interview and it's really great, great movie. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It's also really cool because it's loaded with Star Trek people in it. You know, you got Christopher Lloyd, Brad Dourif, Vincent Schiavelli, and of course, Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratched. Uh, so, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like being on that set. And, you know, I, you weren't, you didn't really have any speaking lines, but you're in a lot of pretty key scenes. You're there for most of the film. So, you know, what were the days like on set and just what was what was the camaraderie like if there was any among the other cast members? It became a family. We lived uh, we worked six days a week, 12, 13, 14 hour days. We stayed at the Hotel Inn, Jack and Louise and, uh, and the production staff. They ran to the house for all of the production staff and, and the um, upper echelons. And uh, we were in Salem, Oregon. We spent two weeks of rehearsals with uh, with camera. We had Panavision cameras, and we also had something called carbon arc lighting. Those are the you know like the searchlights with they burn the carbon rod, and that's uh, a whole um, skill set to learn how to work with them because the rod will uh, is consumed and it, and it spins and goes in, and when it gets too short, it'll start to flicker and you can't use those shots. So. When they would start a shot, it would be uh, striking the arc, and they're, turning, and they're really bright, and if you're close to them at all, I mean, it's like, ah, uh, melting you. Um, so there was so much to learn. Well, during the first two weeks, we had rehearsals with cameras, uh, scene blocking, running lines, and we had to spend an hour a day, every day, for two weeks, Sundays off, with real patients. Even the criminally insane, they still used that word back then. And while we were there, there was even a lobotomy that had been uh, performed to try to keep it secret. But when you have a film company in town, in a place, you know, people talk, uh, just, I mean, they, we find stuff out. It, it was wonderful. We all became lifelong friends. I'll just cut to the chase. Louise, Danny, Jack, everybody, it just, we all became, there was a poem, I think I have it in one of my totes somewhere, that was handed out in the uh, welcome to uh, welcome to the ward is what it said. And it explained, you know, uh, our duties, uh, who's doing what, who to call for this or that. And it talked, the, the poem talked about the life of the artist and people that are creative and the end, the secondary and more profound message is uh, humanity. What are you performing? What are you conveying? What, are you, what is your story about? It's about the human condition. And it's as varied as there are people and lives and experiences. So when we met with the patients, they told us straight up, no bullshit, how things happened. There were women's wards and men's wards, and the buildings were separated. 
and uh, there was an area for gardening, etc. There were also tunnels that went underneath the ground, uh, like they do, uh, from building to building, because when it was cold and snowing and wintry, uh, if you had a medical procedure, it would be challenging for them to take you from one building to another in the cold or in the rain. It rains a lot up there. It's a rainforest area. So there were tunnels. And over time, you know, the, the people that weren't completely wacko, uh, sometimes you, if you're committed and you're there for life, I mean, you might not want to have a date. You might want to meet one of the, the women, uh, gals, guys, whatever. And uh, occasionally some of the uh, orderlies would uh, have uh, supervised little parties and get togethers. These are not prisoners, you see. So the experience was uh, we worked hard. We had, we had the press from all, every day there's six or seven or more reports from different countries and different magazines and books. And it was monumental. And we all knew it was going to win Oscars. It's just without a doubt. I mean, it's, it's just such a rich, wonderful film. Uh, my neighbor at the hotel was the chief, uh, um, Will Sampson. We had many times together. We got so tired of the all the restaurants were closed by the time we would wrap in the evening. And we got tired of the food at the Holiday uh, Inn where we were staying. So I went and got a Sunbeam electric uh, frying pan with a lid and a rented a refrigerator. And, and I would cook. And I would cook in my bathroom and had the exhaust fan on. And it would vent into Will Sampson's room. He had people visiting all the time. He, he was a musician and he had friends from Yakima and I would hear guitar music and people singing and gals over there. And I get a call on my phone, you know, Michael, I smell veggies. Something smells real good. I got some friends who want to meet you. Come on over when it's ready. Let me know. So we made the best of a situation that was challenging and we loved it. We really, really, really did. I was at a club many years later in, in Los Angeles or Hollywood, uh, not the whiskey, it was uh, the um, Troubadour. Very, very famous. I used to haunt, I used to haunt those places. I'd skip class just to be around. I love folk music, good rock and roll, good jazz, blues. I love good music. Some of my favorite artists were uh, um, The Birds, anything by Stephen Stills, Joni Mitchell, John Baez, Bob Dylan. Um, so one day a buddy of mine who played really great Martin guitar, he was my roommate when I went away to college, Bruce Moran was his name. And he says, Hey, I heard that, uh, Joni Mitchell's doing a sound check at the Troubadour at three o'clock. So I sold advertising for the yearbook. So I had this, I had access to the Dean's office. who was a real jerk. And he had a, 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 pamphlet with a stamp with his name and I peeled off like about 50 of those and his excuses to get out of class or go somewhere so I I would just hand those into my, my class and go, ah, I gotta go and then I would hop on the bus the blue bus one that the more Jim Morrison talks about in the doors the blue bus well it's Santa Monica that's Venice Beach that's the blue bus line Santa Monica bus line and we, we took it all the way up Santa Monica Boulevard to the Troubadour. We were there at a quarter to three, sat right in front of the little stage, people going about their business, getting the kitchen stocked up for dinner. And there's Joni Mitchell right in front of me uh, doing a sound check. And she's talking to us and we're telling her we know her songs. And uh, she was super, super nice, a beautiful, beautiful, incredibly talented lady. And, um, Ladies of the Canyon, she, she's one of them. Anyway, uh, I was in awe. Uh, that, uh, and the rest of that is in my book. Yeah. So um, um, I just kept getting a bit part. I got an agent. Well, actually, this is funny. I'm, I'm going to regress here. When I, had, when, I ne- when I needed an agent to do the contract, Cuckoo's Nest, this is funny. Um, I got the list from my union. These are all franchised agents. Doesn't mean they're all good ones. Doesn't mean they're all nice. So Sunset Boulevard at the edge of Hollywood, uh, big building. And I had an appointment with an agent. He says, yeah, this is very important. You'd be here. I'm somebody important. Okay. So I was there. 
walk into the office, big palatial, huge doors, walk in, I go to the front desk, oh, hi, I'm Michael Garman, here's who I spoke to, I've got doing cuckoo's nest, nobody knew what cuckoo's nest was, they hardly knew who Jack Nicholson was. Anyway, she goes, I don't see your name here. Well, I'm pretty linear, that's a polite word. <laughs> and my wife sometimes uses another word. And then such times when she goes, I'm glad you are. And I took out my notes and I said, are you so-and-so? Yes. At uh, um, blah, blah, blah o'clock, uh, I spoke with you for nine minutes. And you said, be here on time. This guy's important. Well, I got here early. Now in the foyer, in the lobby of this big palatial office of Mr. Powerful was a bunch of guys all looking similar and a bunch of gals all looking similar, looking at sides because they're auditioning, competing against one another, which is what we do. And it's, it's nothing weird about it. You want to get the best person for the part. And they're overhearing my conversation. And I said, look, I'm here out of respect to what this guy can do for me. And I have the part already. I just need someone to get 10% of whatever it's going to be. So I'm not leaving until I talk to this guy. Ah, she goes in, she says, he'll see you now. I walk in, I leave the double doors open and I'm 15 feet tall, huge. So here's this guy, uh, a little pudgy, maybe five, seven, maybe. Hawaiian shirt, chest hairs, a gold chain, with a gold spoon, it's a cocaine spoon, kids, that's it, you put that in it, shove it up your nose. And an attitude that really pissed me off. Puts his hands together behind his head, leans back in his chair and goes, what makes them think you're an actor? I said, well, you know, that's a valid question. We've never met. And I said, well, I worked one day for George Powell and did a fine job, but I'm playing a lobotomy patient. I don't have any speaking lines. So I'm sure I'll do fine. And um, I just need you to make a phone call and come up with whatever contract you guys agree upon of what I'm worth for, you know, six days a week. I'm going to be there for four months. You know, it's probably pocket change for you, but it's something. It's I'm you don't have to make just one phone call. And then I said, wait a minute. You have a very belligerent attitude. And I don't think I want you to re represent me. I'll find somebody else that uh, I can work with. And I used to have a fiery uh, temper as a kid. When you're looking different, you get teased. But especially when uh, somebody else would get hurt, like my buddy who had polio and he walked with the braces and some kid would make fun of him or trip him and uh, I went up in the principal's office a few times because when I have a few scope, you're going to hit me in here, it's not going to put me out. You, you got to hit me out somewhere else, I guess. I'm getting advice. So I had nothing to lose. Tell this guy what the hell I thought of him. I want to be polite and not, not tell you. I explained to him why I thought his uh, hair was curly. Um, something to do with electricity and uh, wish he was a different race. Um, Use your imagination. And he doesn't get out of his chair to confront me and tell me to shut up or throw me out of his office. And I said, you know what? You're such a coward, blah, 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 blah. I'm just leaving. No. I probably, you know, it's probably unnecessary for me to say what I did, but I did. And as I walked out, I said, yeah, you're going you're gonna to audition all these guys and gals. And uh, you probably want that guy over there. Now, all these kids hear this, and I'm going, Michael, you need to get control of yourself. So I walk out, get in the elevator, go down to Sunset Boulevard, smoggy, hot, miserable. We park two blocks away because there's no place to park. And as I walk out the front door, I see a white 1966 Chevy Nova. Great little cars with license plates that said Kansas. There's an elderly couple, not really old, maybe in their 60s. And I go, oh, you can't park here. You're going to get a ticket. If you go around the corner, I'll show you where you can park. So they do that. And I go, what are you doing from Kansas? Here to see Hollywood and 
no, no, our, our granddaughter won a beauty contest. Oh, really? Yes, and she won an opportunity to meet a Hollywood agent. Oh, really? What's his name? Yeah, you guessed right. I says, you don't want her to have anything to do with that guy. I didn't give her all the details. I said, the guy's a jerk. And I said, so uh, how old is she? He goes, oh, she's 18. Wow. Here she is walking out the door. And uh, she went to get uh, a Coca-Cola or something, you know. So she's coming back to the car. And she's gorgeous. New Bile, innocent, stunning. And I go, well, you're going to you know, chaperone her when, wherever she goes on. And, oh, she'll be fine. I'm going to get her an apartment. And I said, um, and the, the girl was there before she went up there. I says, uh, the guy that you're going to go see is a total blankety blank, not a nice guy. And if you don't, um, you might not like what I want to tell you, but uh, if you don't have a chaperone, this, this city is going to eat you up. If you ever get invited to a party, it's a meet and greet. You show up for 10 minutes to hi, hello, why are you exchange some business cards and leave. You rarely get work going to a party. And uh, you're, I'll be honest, you're, you're stunning and gorgeous. And um, you don't have a lot of experience in this realm or any realm, be it whatever business. And um, if you don't have somebody that you can trust working with you, I, I, don't, I recommend that you maybe do uh, local theater or indie movies at home, get a name for yourself and then move and then, and then go on. I mean, it's your call, but I wish you well. And they drove off into the, into the um, traffic and I always wonder what happened to her. So I finished Cuckoo's Nest and then I get a, a call from my agent to meet uh, Peter Locke and Wes Craven and we do Hills Have Eyes. But a very interesting thing happened when I was doing cuckoo's nest because I had lobotomy scars every day, six days a week. And the gentleman who made those lobotomy scars was none other than Star Trek's Fred Phillips, the makeup artist. His father started the Makeup Artist Union. Now, when Fred and I were doing our, our, our lobotomy scars every morning, he would tell me a story. And he didn't stay at hotels. He took his Cadillac and his... Uh, this little dog and pulled a trailer and went to a uh, trailer park. He says, that's how you do it, son. And he was like my mentor, wonderful guy. One day, Jack Nicholson came in to get his lobotomy scars figured out. And, and Fred had to trim just a few hairs along here. And Jack goes, they'll grow back, won't they, won't they Fred? And I looked at Jack and I go, you baby. Of course they won't. <laughs> um, but um, Fred Phillips t used to tell me a different story every day, 127 days, 127 different stories. And many of them were about Star Trek. And he told me how he did the uh, designs, um, Leonard's ears, the whole nine yards. So sure enough, eventually I get a casting call for, uh, Star Trek four voyage home. And Graphics display officer. I have the two blue lights on my headset. Get them back. Get them back. You know, trying to figure out what those blue lights were, by the way. Do you have any idea what they were? Huh? I was trying to figure out what those blue lights were, by the way. Do you have any idea what they were for? Did they explain to you what those were? Well, I just meant that the headset was working. Okay. Yeah. And so my my make. I'm wearing a you know officer's uniform, and I'm in the, in the middle of the console, and you. You know, you're making, you're pretending all the buttons work and you know what you're doing. A lot of fun. And um, I learned in speech class, if you say, every time you say, um, they lower it one grade. So I probably got enough by now. So <laughs> when, the, when the window implodes, when the window implodes the Star Trek IV, that was sugar glass. And they have something called an air cannon, which breaks it and drive, moves it forward. So I hear it and I can sense it. I can sort of see it peripherally. And as it gets just about here, I go, wow, it's a whole transparent line and it's moving even farther forward. And then I felt it bouncing off my jacket 
and pieces of it got impaled into the latex rubber that was part of my headset. <laughs> and uh, our director was, of course, Leonard. And he goes, well, that was, that was ridiculous. Star Trek Four. I don't even quite know what alien that was, but uh, you know, you basically in the Star Trek series that you've been in, you've played aliens with a lot of heavy makeup, a lot of prosthetics. Uh, in TNG, you're the first ever Bolian. Um, but can you tell us a little bit of time? And by the way, I'm saying um so much, I'm failing the, the same class too now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the makeup process was like for both those scenes, and which was better, which was worse, what was easier to deal with? Well, I got used to. Uh, uh, they do a whole head. They did a whole head cast for. Uh, the graphics display officer because I had uh, earpieces and, and, and a whole headpiece. So they, they cast your whole head, which is very relaxing because when they get, you know, they, they clean your nostrils out so you can breathe. But the more you just chill and then it, you feel the weight and it gets real cold then it gets really warm. And it's, it's like a facial. <laughs> it, t- it takes about 40 minutes. And if you're claustrophobic, it could be an issue, but I'm not. So, well, it depends where I'm sure I could be in the wrong spot. Uh, Relaxing and and, and then when you sit in the chair in the morning and you're you're getting ready, you make sure that you've already had breakfast and eat or drink because they don't want you. uh, If you you have full prosthetics, it lasts. And and that's when the catering day is usually killer. But uh, that wasn't an issue. I just had the headpiece and the ears. Uh, it's, I find it relaxing uh, getting the prosthetics done. And then when they get done, they, they, they'll take the little sponge wedges and they'll stipple and they get the color right and they hold up a mirror and you, you, you get transformed. During that process, it's very easy for me to open those hallway doors, so to speak, and be in another part of my house in my head. So it becomes believable. Uh, People say, you know, there's different famous acting coaches. Uh, Sabinsky, that's a reflex, but uh, uh, there's a name, it it escapes me right now, but a famous dramatic coach. I think he taught Marilyn Monroe and uh, uh, James Dean, et cetera. uh, Stravinsky, I can't can't. Stanislavski method, I think. Well, for me, you know your lines. You're aware, and study your face. Get to, and 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 learn your camera. Know about lenses. Know how what's depth of field, uh, that kind of stuff. POV, all that stuff's real important. Milos Forman had me look through the Panavision camera and handed me a book on cinematography. If you're an actor in film or television, I strongly recommend that you study on cinematography. What does the camera do? Uh, Milos, because I asked him one day uh, when we were doing Kukas, I asked Milos, I go, what do I need to know? He says, well, you need to know your lines, et cetera, et cetera, the characters and and the uh, emotional motivation of why people are doing and saying what they say. But he took me and stood me in front of the Panavision camera and he said, well, he's puffing on his pipe. He goes, look at the lens. I want you to have a love affair with the glass. That's good advice. What does it mean? When you've learned and studied, you'll know what that meant. And uh, I've had compliments uh, for a long time because I, I, I worked real hard on, on knowing that, how to hit your mark without looking, where's my mark? There's so much to do. Um, I would recommend never eat food or drink on camera. We had a, a scene for breakfast in Cuckoo's Nest where I figured it had been a few weeks ago. Oh, I'm, well, I want to sit on the bench that's right in front of the cameras. I want to be in this shot, which is fine. And I'm a lobotomy. I get my oatmeal grade. Okay, action. Eat some. The dialogue goes on, and then it's okay, going again. I go, going again. I guess we're going to do another take, which is normal. You take all the oatmeal from the bowls and put it back in the same pot. I'm going, oh, what do we, what do you want us to do different? No, same action. Okay. So I go to get my oatmeal. I go to sit down. I'm in front of the camera. And here's what I do. I go, 
well, maybe he's sick and tired of oatmeal. He's a lobotomy patient. And, he's, and, he's, and so I just pretended like, uh, sort of played with it. Did a couple more takes, cut, great, we got it, wrap, that's wrap scene, let's move it on, then we'll have lunch. So I'm walking down the hallway, and Milos comes up to me, my director, and goes, hey, you're learning, you're, you're catching on pretty quick. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of little things to know that you learn, especially from the actors that have been doing it for a while. It's good to listen and leave your ego at home. Um, so working with Fred Phillips was delightful. When I got done doing uh, Voyage Home, I was <laughs> uh, I was pretty stoked, and then the the, the film was wonderful. Leonard uh, uh, Leonard had a vibe that was pretty amazing, pretty amazing. I we wish he uh, could have, you know not smoke cigarettes. My mom was a nurse. She smoked menthols, but um, not a big fan of cigarettes. You know, they kill you and they know and they love it. They don't care. Um, and then another funny thing happened years later. I got, uh, I got the, uh, the role as uh, Captain Ricks, the next generation. And we, when I was getting the makeup done, we were trying to figure out uh, a design for this, this race of aliens, which did not have a name yet. So it's mottled, spotty, gray and blue, and split all the way up. It looked really cool. So I'm talking to the makeup artist and my director and producer. They were tossing names around, and I go, I came up with the name uh, Boolean. And they ran with that, and it sort of became. And uh, <laughs> A lot of actors that have worked in Star Trek in the early days during the early Fangoria conventions and others. Uh, in L.A., this, this happened a lot at the near LAX airport. There would be a Trek convention. And you see lawyers with subpoenas and they're in suits and they're walking to every actors tables and if you have anything from Star Trek they uh, confiscate it and sue you on the spot well I had taken they gave me some pictures of me and as a headshot uh, in as a Bolarian it was pretty cool right and I, and I had a couple made up uh, they're on my table and, and I'm looking and I'm going hmm I'll take mine a high it's the only thing I had. I had maybe 10 of them. And I remember one time somebody was whining to me about how Paramount, they own it, and they they don't want people selling Star Trek merchandise without permission, which is fine because you signed a contract saying that you wouldn't do that. So, okay. People go, you got anything from Star Trek? No, I don't have permission. Well, other people, well, we're not supposed to. But they treated us good. They've always paid the, the residuals, the royalties, uh, treat you good on set. Paramount, thank you very much for everything that you've done for me. Now, one day, I, well, I wrapped on, on I got work three days on Next Generation. And Captain Rick's the whole backstory, how that all happened. Uh, it, it, we kind of all made it up. Uh, and uh, I met Major Barrett many times at conventions. She's lovely. <laughs> so I was living with a gal. She had some kids, uh, and they were in uh, I don't know, grammar school. And I wanted to drive up to the Antelope Valley where I was living from Paramount Studios and pick them up from school. So they went on the bus and show up as an alien. So... I hop on the 101 freeway. I'm heading up to, the, and, I, and I'll be there in time, right? And I called the school and I said, uh, they had phones in the classroom. I go, I'll be picking the kids up and take them home. Don't put them on the bus. But I wanted to be able to walk in the classroom so their classmates could see who's this. Uh, he's my mom's boyfriend. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we live together and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of cool. Wow, cool. Well, in order to get to class on time, where they were on the bus, 
I was on the Antelope Valley, the 14 freeway uh, east of the I-5. I had to pass a car. There was only one other car on the highway, and it happened to be a deputy sheriff. So I figured I'll just slowly and politely go to the left lane and pass him, going faster than the speed limit. And then when I got parallel to him and he looked over at me like, wow, what the, what do you think you're doing? He sees this alien, blue, gray, split, ears. And I look at him and I go, I am late for my ship. I do that twice, doing 70 miles an hour. And the officer does this. Closed his eyes, looks away, and goes. <laughs> I go, cool. So I floored. My Pontiac was went pretty fast. I hit 90, 95 miles an hour, whatever. Nobody on the road. And I was expecting red lights and go to jail or something. And nothing happened. Anyway, I got, got in class in time, picked the kids up. We went shopping, and people are going, oh. And they go, yeah, he looks like that all the time. That's, you know, he didn't have his coffee this morning. We had, in other words, we had fun with it. My girlfriend was helping me uh, get the makeup off, and there was little pieces of latex stuck in my different holes in my head. But I, t- I tell you that to say this, is that uh, you got to have fun with it. I mean, Gene couldn't get it produced in the beginning, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, I've made wonderful friends. Uh, George is hilarious. I love George. Oh, my. That's exactly what he sounds like. <laughs> he, he always comes over and says hi, gives me a hug. You know what I mean? So acting became uh, an experience where I had an extended family and got to travel. I've been to the Amazon. I've been to Europe. been to a lot of wonderful places. And... The best thing about it is that we get to tell stories. Some are more, not more important, but perhaps more poignant. Some have more to say than others. Some are just, you know, know, jerk the strings, you know, shock the monkey kind of stuff. It's it's all about it. I'm not not a big fan of uh, censorship. Of course, there are taboo areas which are obvious. Yeah, uh, snuff film, not a really a good idea. We'll find where you are. You're going to go to a special place. Uh, I, I won't put up with uh, abuse to uh, women or animals or taking advantage. I was working on a, a, a film as an Italian production with uh, Jim, Jimmy Kahn, James Kahn. It's called Another Woman, Another Chance. And we were filming in Malibu Lake. And... I had had surgery under my arms, so I had open wounds, and I couldn't jump in the lake to retrieve a bracelet. Uh, in the story, we uh, we go out to the prairie, me and my two sidekicks who are older than me. They're old Western star actors. We're not very polite to Jimmy Kahn's uh, wife, and he was a veterinarian traveler, and he comes home, his wife is deceased. And and it's years later, he runs across us, and, and I happen to be wearing a bracelet that I'd stolen from the house. So he identifies that, gets or goes back to our camp, gets uh, and, and he goes, "You're going to jail." And I go, "Oh yeah." Well, I throw it in the lake, and I go, uh, "No proof, no trial." And he says, "Well," then he just shoots me because I couldn't jump in the water. I had an open wound. But the other two actors were probably in their sixties, a little bit big in the proboscis, the nose, veins. Maybe they drink too much, you know. But still, they were hardworking people. Point is, they had to go in the water. And this, the script is such to where he, he tells them to keep going down and down and down and find it, find it, find it. They don't find it. Finally, they drown and die of exposure, both of them. Well, the scene's going on and on and on. It's about 4.35 in the evening on a, in the winter in, in L.A. But the water was cold. And these guys were just start turning up, turning blue. And I went over, uh, I'm sorry, but I don't sugarcoat things. And I went over to my uh, producers and I said, uh, these guys are shivering in between takes. I says, we need to help them out. I said, uh, could you get some ferny ferny pads? Those are blankets. You know, if you have to fall down to call them ferny pads, well, that's the term. 
I said, get some freaking blankets, put them in that truck where your, your staff's sitting there with the heater on because it's cold and get them warm. And you know what those guys told me? Oh, look at their noses. They're alcoholics. Look, uh, so-and-so went to get them some whiskey. <laughs> I don't know Italian, but I know what fangulo means. And I said a few Italian things to them. And I said, you do the right thing or I'll do it. You know, I've been known to be a SHIT disturber, <laughs> but sometimes you have to. You know, don't be meek and mild. I mean, just look at the, look at the... Uh, the themes and, and, and the stories that are in Trek, Star Trek. Gene and, and Major, they brought up every possible situation of, it's humanity rising, which is what I appreciate Star Trek about. They go, oh, well, I like this series better than that series. This one's but that's not the point. If it's not your cup of tea, then get a different flavor. But don't you appreciate what they're trying to say? It's entertaining. We're going to take you somewhere so you can qualify uh, who you are, what you're about, what objectify that which you appreciate and know why. I'm sorry, but the way the world is today, but with, you know, uh, instant gratification, is just like, read any science fiction from the past. These are prophets. These are people that really have the age factor, humanity. If it's not about that, then go away. Yeah, so uh, I, I've always done a little nod, tip of the hat to uh, Gene Roddenberry and Major Berry. And she, every time I've ever met her at a show, she's just the most delightful lady. All right, so Michael, as we're coming up towards the end of this interview here, I mean, there's so much I wanted to talk to you about. We'll have to save that for the sequel interview, hopefully. Uh, but let's just talk right now. Most valuable piece of advice someone ever told you, and that could be either about filmmaking or acting or just about life itself. There are two. Um, the first one will be a quote from my dear friend, Brandon Lee's father, Bruce Lee, in the movie where it's Laos time and the young boy is getting his karate lesson and Bruce says, kick me. And he gives him some advice and he does it again. And Bruce says, not in anger. It's like pointing your finger to the stars. Don't focus on your finger or you will miss out on all of that celestial glory. Emotional content. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Bruce. Second one is from my Nana, my grandmother, Sophie. Be childlike, not childish. Very good quotes from Bruce Lee and Michael Berryman's Nana. <laughs> and the third one is one I came up with. This is, this is for the ladies. If you're concerned about getting wrinkles and getting older, number one, cigarettes are bad, but in general, uh, what helps is to be lazy. Talking about your face, looking in the mirror, oh, I'm getting wrinkles, be lazy. You know why? It only takes three muscles to smile. It takes 27 to frown. Oh, Michael, very cool. Now, uh, last thing for today. I feel like you might have already asked this in some ways, but what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Wherever you are on the Earth and you meet a Trekkie, you're with friends and family, people that have an open mind. That's a real good thing. And if you don't mind, I need numbers to get past the bean counter so I can get my book published. So please go to TikTok. Uh, the official Michael Berryman and on uh, Instagram. I've got some short little videos there that would help me get my numbers up so my book can get published. And uh, thank you very much. So everybody, we're going to have links to all of Michael's social media. So make sure you follow him if you're already not doing that. Instagram and TikTok. Peace out. <laughs> all right, Michael, thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you. I really hope we get to do it again because I got so much more we didn't even touch on today because you've done so many amazing things. So I hope we can do it again. And I look forward to hopefully meeting you at a con one day also because, uh, yeah, you're awesome. So thank you, Michael. <laughs> thank you, Matthew. Right, thank you so much. Uh, and of course, as always, live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. 
or pick up some merchandise from our store or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.